Over these last few weeks, I've really been reflecting on what happened 20 years ago, 9.02 a.m., when literally our world shook. The following couple of weeks were a blur. There was so much to do. There were so many tears that were shed, so many prayers that were prayed. There was anger. There was fear. There was guilt. There were grateful hearts. I spent a lot of time thinking about it and wondering, how is our world different today because of what happened 20 years ago? Now, I wondered, what did we learn about ourselves because of this experience 20 years ago? Because I think there was so much that we did learn. And it's fascinating, so much of what we learned actually came from other people looking at us. It was 19 years ago today, on the one-year anniversary of the bombing, that I was about to be interviewed on Good Morning America. They were wanting to come back and look at Oklahoma City one year after the bombing and to discuss where were we? Were we in the process of healing? Had we gone forward? Was this going to throw everybody back into grief? It was during that week leading up to it that I visited with people from New York who were trying to prepare me for the interview. They wanted to kind of talk about, here's the questions, here's where we're going to go with this, give you a chance to think about it. But then they said to me, what we're really curious is, why was Oklahoma City so different? You know, it seemed different. There was something about the spirit here in Oklahoma City. I mean, the way you treated the rescue workers, the way everybody pitched in no matter what, without worry of cost, how there wasn't looting and rioting, how so many people volunteered to be there to help and do whatever was necessary. Now, we know lots of people go to church in Oklahoma City. Was it because of faith? Was it because so many people go to church? There sure is an interesting spirit in Oklahoma City. I couldn't help but smile. And I said, yes, there is a spirit in Oklahoma City. And I had a front row to see it. It was at 9.02. I was sitting in my office here in this building then. When literally it shook. I felt like someone had punched me in the ribs. I hollered out loud. I jumped up out of my chair and ran outside. Dave Petit was coming out of his office. And we immediately knew something had blown up in this building. We thought a gas leak, something had happened in this building. And then word came, no, it's a, it's a building downtown. We took a moment to kind of gather, what should we possibly do? We got the phone and we called the Red Cross and said, if you need a shelter, we're happy to be here. They said, we'll let you know. It wasn't too long after that, we got another call and they said they're looking for pastors to come downtown. They're bringing out survivors from the building now. And we need someone to stand with them and to keep everybody corralled, get them on a bus so they can be taken to a process center and find out who is alive and who is missing. And so Dave and I headed downtown and we had just gotten there when a lady came and was delivered to us. You could tell she was in shock. She simply started saying, I, I was on the seventh floor. I was sitting at my desk. I was talking to a friend of mine sitting opposite of me. And I turned around to get something out of the credenza. She had pushed back to get into the file cabinet. 
And suddenly when she turned around, she was looking into outer space. Just everything was gone. Her desk and her friend. And as we stood there talking, she said how guilty she felt. For she had lived. And she knew her friend was gone. People began to come out. We got them on the bus. And then we got word the Red Cross does want to use the church as a, as a Red Cross center. And so Dave and I came back to the building. Things were already starting to happen back here at the church. I, I walked down the child care center hall and I, there was a truck outside and they were unloading refrigerators and freezers and putting them down the hall. And I said, what are you doing? And they said, aren't you the Red Cross shelter? And I said, yes. They said, you're going to need these. I didn't know we were going to need these. They knew I was going to need these. I started to learn at that moment that real love is there to help you before you even know what you need. And they were responding. We would need them. Because it wasn't long after that, suddenly food started to arrive. From fast food restaurants to fine restaurant dining, all this food started pouring in. And then the Red Cross workers started to arrive, and then families looking for names. And then as evening began to fall, all these people who no longer had somewhere to live, mainly people from the YMCA downtown, Regency Tower, people who did not have family or the financial means to secure other housing, all that area around the Murrah building where so many of the poor would be, they had nowhere to go. And they had lost everything. And so they came. Suddenly we had more than 300 people there in the Christian Life Center, people who had spent the night. We were setting up cots and there was the, the, the Red Cross and there was families and it was crazy with hundreds of people there in the Christian Life Center. I remember walking into the fellowship hall the Christian Life Center was three years old. Just three years old. Still looked beautiful and new. And I walked into the Christian Life Center and there on our beautiful brass chandeliers there was a coat hanger handing from the chandelier. It was being used as a closet. It took my breath for a moment and I smiled. And I want you to know not one member of this family of faith ever complained. Not one member of this family of faith ever said anything about the incredible use and abuse this facility was about to take with hundreds of people living here, spending the night for the last several weeks, using chandeliers as closets, eating. It was crazy. No one complained. No, I don't ever remember putting out a word saying, come help. What I remember is, you came. Before anybody asked, you came to stand at the doors to direct people where to go to greet them. You, you came, the phone, we, we had six lines coming through one switchboard and you couldn't answer it fast enough. And so we took it apart and had a line go to six different offices and someone was there to answer the phone. Another person would work the message and they just did that as fast as they could pick up the phone and hang it up and pick it up. We did that for days I don't remember ever asking. You came. You knew. And of course, there were so many people who had lost everything. You helped to provide clothes. There were so many people that all you needed to do was sit with them, hold their hand, cry, pray. But I think of all the meals. 
three to 4,000 meals a day were coming out of that kitchen. Feeding the people who are now living here. We put it on carts to carry it downtown to the rescue workers, to firefighters, to police. People who've been working eight hours, 12 hours, 14 hours. They needed to eat and have something to drink. And we begin taking the food out and feeding the people here. I remember all the ways you served. And I think that's what made me think about our scripture lesson this morning of Timothy. Because Timothy was the one who was called to serve. And 2,000 years ago, a fundamental decision was made that affected the way that we lived 20 years ago. You see, what was happening was the early church was really beginning to grow. And there were different groups of people. You had the Hebrew Christians, that is, people who had been Jewish, who became Christian, who lived in Israel, and they spoke Aramaic. And they had certain customs from living in Israel. And then you had the, those who were from the Dysphoria, that is, countries out around the world, who would come back to Jerusalem. And now they had become Christian, but they spoke Greek. And they brought with them the traditions of their countries. And so you had the Hellenist and the Hebrew Christians. And there was such a great need that the Hebrew Christian widows were being taken care of and not the Hellenist. And you see, to be a widow in that day was a difficult time. If you were a woman who was married, didn't matter what age, and your husband died, and you didn't have family to take care of you, you couldn't go get a job. There was no social services. No, you could beg. And so what happened was the faith communities got together to collect food and money to distribute to the widows and to the poor. And so the church is trying to do the best they can and they're not getting it done. And the disciples come together and they talk about it and said, this isn't good enough. We will do better than this. We must take care of all. It doesn't matter whether they're Hebrew Christians, the Hellenist Christians, we're going to take care of all. And so they called together seven men and they prayed for them and laid hands on them. And their job was to oversee the daily distribution of food. To be there to help the poor and the widow and those in need. And one of those who was chosen was Stephen. Stephen would be there to serve and to care for the people. And because of that, Stephen would be known as great. Not because of power, not because of wealth or influence, Stephen was great because of the way that he served. This morning, I want to continue on with the sermon series, Called to Greatness. Because let me tell you, 20 years ago, you were great. You served all. You asked no questions. You served all. And what we are reminded is God still calls us to do that today. We are the people who are called to share God's love and bring hope in the world. We are called to greatness. So what I wanted to do is to kind of think back about how are we living life differently today because of the things we learned about ourselves 20 years ago. And I think there's three important things to see. First of all, what we learned 20 years ago was there is no answer to the question, why? Of all the things I heard in the earliest days after the bombing was simply, why? Why did this happen? Why did this happen? Why me? This is so senseless. This is so unfair. 
And what we discovered was, if you spend a lifetime asking, why me? Then that moment in time, well, you become locked there. You become a victim. That's the defining moment in your life, and you never go forward to heal and to live. You can spend the rest of your life when life has been unfair, when bad things have happened. You can spend the rest of your life asking, why? Why me? And if that's where you are, you become a victim, and you never go forward and heal and grow. Some people try to answer that question by saying, why? Well, it was God's will. Now, I had a friend of mine in another state call and say, Bob, is God punishing Oklahoma City for something it did? Said, no. Are you kidding? No. And no, I don't believe this is God's will. What we sometimes forget is that we are created free. We're all created as God's children, these wonderful little children who are born and come. We are free to choose how we're going to live. And in the end, sometimes people choose to be evil. They choose to do things that are unspeakable. That's not God's will. That is people choosing to do hurtful things to innocent people. That's life. Things happen. Now, when this took place, I started talking about Arthur Ashe, and I still talk about him today. This was very important growth for me years ago. And then about Arthur Ashe, you remember Arthur Ashe was an African-American tennis player in the 60s and 70s. He was phenomenal. I loved tennis. And I would watch him, and Arthur Ashe, he became ranked number one in the world, the first and only African-American man to win Wimbledon, the U.S. Open, the Australian Open. He was incredible, and what a phenomenal athlete good human being, man of faith, married, a daughter. And 36 years old, he has a heart attack. A heart attack. Has to have open heart bypass surgery. A few years later, he has to have surgery again. This is the early 1980s. And most people believe, the doctors believe, it was probably the second surgery that he was given tainted blood. Blood with HIV. This was before we really knew what to watch and to do. And before we knew it, Arthur Ashe had AIDS. He would die in 1993 at 49 years old. What a tragedy. How senseless. 43 years old and he died from AIDS. Before he died, he wrote a book entitled Days of Grace. In which he talked about his life and he addressed this very issue of what had happened to him. And he said, you know, I've never sat around asking the question, why me? I never asked the question, why me, when I won Wimbledon? I didn't ask, why me, when I won the U.S. Open? No, the question is, why not me? Because life is hard. And sometimes life is unfair. And bad things do happen to good people. It's not God's will. It's life. There are natural disasters with tornadoes. People make mistakes with blood. There are people in their freedom who choose to be evil. It is life. And we can't spend a lifetime asking why me or we become victims. So secondly, we learned we can't live in fear. 
the senselessness and the suddenness of this incredible tragedy reminded us all how vulnerable we are. It made us all feel incredibly vulnerable. Realizing death can happen, bad things can happen to me, to my family. And that that was the other thing I heard so often from people after this bombing was, Bob, I'm just feeling afraid. I mean, if it can happen here in Oklahoma City, if it can happen in our backyard... It made us confront our own sense of mortality and made us realize we're vulnerable. Now, I got to tell you, the first five months of 1995 were probably personally the most difficult months in my life. And all the things that I lived through, it, it was in January of 1995. Marsh and I had a special friend, our closest friend, Scott DeBerry, 34 years old. He was killed in a small plane crash. He left behind a wife and three small children. He was a member of the church we served there in Houston. We went sailing together, he and his wife. We traveled together. Scott and his son Jordan, well, they went with us, Oklahoma City, St. Luke's, to Russia in 1994. He knew many of you. He loved our Russian family of faith. When Scott died, it was the first time I really encountered grief to deal with the sudden loss that seemed so senseless. It was mechanical malfunction on the plane. It just seemed so senseless. And I cried and I cried. A couple of months went by before I started to feel the ground under my feet, before their day would go by that I wouldn't pull up to a stoplight and think I'm doing fine and suddenly just break into tears for no reason. I came to understand grief. And I finally started to feel better when suddenly the Oklahoma City bombing happened. And I was thrust back into grief. And in the midst of all the people who were suffering and all the loss and all that we were doing. And again, it just made that sense of death so real and and to see how vulnerable we truly are. Another month had gone by. Every night, Marsh and I were taking long walks here in the neighborhood. And we talked about life. And we talked about death. We talked about our faith. We were living in the light of Easter and that promise of eternal life. We just kept talking. I got to tell you, it was a time to grow in my faith. How do I deal with this? And I finally was feeling stronger after another month. And I remember the night we took a walk and I said, you know, I really think I can deal with just about anything that life throws my way now except something happening to my kids. And when we got home from that walk, we walked inside and the phone was ringing and Marsha went and picked up the phone and it was a nurse from the university hospital saying, your daughter Kelly has been in a car accident and they've brought her in by ambulance. And Marsha said she just paused and it seemed like an eternity before she finally added... We think she's going to be all right, but we need you to come. And so we went to the hospital to check on Kelly. She wound up being all right. She and a bunch of teenagers had been crammed into a car, and through no fault of their own, a drunk driver ran a stop sign and hit them broadside. It was a miracle that several kids were not killed. And one more time, I was reminded again just how vulnerable we are, how in any moment it can change. 
I probably begin to read and to preach more on Psalm 46 than I had ever done before. I would read over and over again, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore we will not fear though the earth should shake. Be still and know that I am God. It was a time for learning to grow still, to know God's presence, that in the midst of the most difficult times you are not alone, that God is present, and you confront death. You know, it's because we live in the light of Easter that you and I understand that death is not the end. It is a doorway into new life in God's kingdom. And if you have the courage to confront death, if you're not afraid to die, then you're not afraid to live. You're not afraid to live if you're not afraid to die. And we don't have to be afraid to die because we know we die into the arms of God. You and I live in a world where we are so vulnerable. And when we know that, it's easy to be afraid. We are not afraid. We are the people of Easter who know the presence of God and the promise of eternal life. We will not become victims to a tragedy. We will not live in fear. We learn third, our response to evil is to love. Our response to evil is to serve. Evil did not break us. No, it made us turn to our faith, which made us strong. You know, I had people say to me then, and I've had people say to me since then, Bob, this was so overwhelming. There was so much grief. There was so much chaos, so much need. Did you ever feel inadequate or feel like you couldn't do it? And I thought about it for a moment, and then I said, no. No, I never felt inadequate or I couldn't do it. I knew that we as a family of faith would do whatever is necessary to rise up and face every person who had a need or grief. We would find places for people to stay or be fed. I never doubted that we as a family of faith would rise up and do whatever was necessary. Evil did not break us. It forced us to look at our own faith where we found strength to pick up broken pieces and to be able to move forward and not trapped by that moment. You know, I've this church for 125 years. It has been so committed. Ever since that first Sunday after the land run, this church has always been committed to really being there for people in need. But when we walked through this bombing, I think it really helped us to, to kind of renew that spirit in an incredible way. And it's what led us to, I believe, to create our mission statement that says, our purpose is to share God's love and bring hope in the world. In the face of evil, in the face of tragedy, whatever it might be, we will share God's love. We're going to bring hope. That's who we are and that's what we do. And that's really where it started back with Stephen. Now here Stephen was such a good man. A man who was responsible for the distribution of food. A man who loved people. A man of faith. And he was so good, he made people jealous. So good that people got angry at him and they wanted him to stop being so effective. So they started to spread rumors and then they formed a mob and they decided to kill him, to stone him. The fascinating thing is that Stephen 
wasn't afraid to die. He had lived through Easter. He had lived through Easter. He wasn't afraid to die. That's why he hadn't been afraid to live. And as he died, he speaks much of the same words as Jesus. He said, Father, lay not this sin to their charge. He answered evil with love. Stephen became the first martyr in the church. And what a tragedy. How senseless. It was not God's will. It was people choosing to be evil. They thought they would break the church. If they stoned Stephen, maybe it would put a stop to this. But you know what happened? It simply scattered people from Jerusalem to so many communities and churches began to grow and start in all kinds of places. And because of the way that Stephen lived and died, there was a man standing by holding the coats of those who stoned him. And his name was Saul. And he watched the way that Stephen lived and died. And that can't help but affect your soul. And soon he would be on the road to Damascus and confront the risen Christ and have his own encounter. And he too would be changed. And he would become Paul, the great apostle who would spend his life sharing God's love and bringing hope into the world. No, it's amazing how God can take what the world does that is not his will, but help to use it, to turn it, so that we are able to do good out of all those things that were so wrong. Yes, God calls us to confront evil. We share His love, and we bring hope in the world. Last week I was telling you about Bob Goff. He wrote a book entitled, Um, Love Does. And he tells about when he had to talk to his children about 9-11. When the Twin Towers came down, and so many people died, they lived up in the east. And he sat down with his three children to try to talk about evil in the world and how such bad things can happen. And as he talked to them about what had happened that day and who had done it and all the leaders of the world and the struggles people were having and the hate, he then said to his three children, if you could have five minutes with world leaders, what would you say to them? And it was his youngest, Adam, who was seven years old and spoke up and said, what I'd say is, I'd invite them all to come over for a sleepover. You see, he had discovered how much fun it was to have friends over and when you play together, You get to know each other and you become friends. He said, I'd I'd invite them all over for a sleepover. His next oldest son was Richard. And he said, well, if I could talk to the world leaders, I would say, what are your hopes? Because I have a feeling if they shared their hopes, someone else would share theirs. They'd discover they all have the same kind of hopes. We're more alike than we think. I think they'd all have the same kind of hopes. And then it was his oldest daughter, Lauren. Well, she spoke up and she said, well, I don't think they'll come to us. I think we ought to go to them. And we ought to ask them about their hopes. But we need to make a video of it. And if we make a video of it, we can show it to the next leader and the next leader. And maybe they really could learn about one another and we could all become friends. And Bob said, that's such a great idea. And so they decided to write leaders to presidents and prime ministers and dictators around the world and ask if they could come visit with them and talk about their hopes and how can we become friends. They all got thrilled about it. 
They wrote their letter. They went and found addresses and they mailed out so many letters to all the leaders around the world. And Bob said to them, if one, if even one says yes, I promise you we will go. Well, the letter started to come back in and as you know, all the leaders of the world, whether they were presidents or prime ministers or dictators, said, thank you, but no thank you. Even Tony Blair sent a handwritten note. Prime Minister of England at the time, he sent a note and he said, jolly good idea. And then he said, no thanks. And he said the children really didn't understand what his jolly good idea meant. But they knew it meant no. And he said, so it kind of started in the family that from then on, whenever Bob would say, do your homework, empty the dishwasher, the children would say, what a jolly good idea. <laughs> Which, of course, meant no. <laughs> and the letters kept coming in, and several, three, four weeks had finally gone by, and one day after school, they went and picked up a stack of letters they'd gotten that day, and the kids were in the backseat opening up, when suddenly they began to shriek and said, we have a letter from the state house in Bulgaria inviting us to come to the palace. Bulgaria. And Bob said, really? <laughs> Bulgaria? There it was, an invitation. Come to the palace. The next day they got a letter from the prime minister of Switzerland saying, come to Bern. And then a letter from the president of Israel saying, come to Jerusalem. They got 29 yeses. And Bob and his wife Maria looked at each other and said, we promised. So they went to the school and said, we're taking the kids out for a long time. <laughs> and some of those teachers just went crazy and saying, what are you doing? And they said, goodbye. And so they took the kids and they headed off. And they immediately had a crash course on manners. How do you eat? What's the right for? A prince, a real prince had responded and said, how do you bow? How do you curtsy? They started learning how do we meet these world leaders. And usually what would happen is when they would go and meet them, they would sit down in a room and, and then the world leader would come in. And he soon would realize these were just kids who did not have an agenda. They wanted to talk about their kids when they were children. They wanted to talk about their grandchildren. What were their hopes and who were they? And when the leaders came to realize these really are kids with no agenda, Bob said usually they invited us back to their office. And we'd sit in their office. And quite often we got invited to their home for dinner. But there was one country. He said it was a previous communist bloc country. And he said we went there. And when we went there, we went into the old communist headquarters. And people stood with guns. And there was a table that had to be 50 foot long. And he said, we sat down and waited. An interpreter came, and the interpreter could not have been kinder and nicer. They waited for this person to come, and you heard the heavy steps come down. And soon this burly man came in, and nobody said a word. And he looked so serious. And he came and sat down beside the children, and through the interpreter he said, I am more nervous about meeting you than meeting George Bush. And then in English, with a heavy Russian accent, he said, And when I get nervous, I eat. And suddenly the servants came out with more food than you could imagine. Everything a child would want. Ice cream and tarts. And 
He said it was a feast. And he just sat back and smiled as the kids began to dig in. And we didn't make a dent. And finally, when we'd eaten all we could and they were trying to clean up before the kids could start, he sat down beside them and began to whisper to them. And he said, when I was your age, each night my father would tell me to go into the woods and to find the hat that he left there. Don't tell my soldiers, but I was afraid. I was so afraid, I knew the bears were going to get me. So when I went into the woods, I would whistle. And he began to whistle. And he asked the children to whistle with him. And then he said, I promise you, I will never let the bears get you. And he began to talk about friendship. Explaining that friends know what you need before you ask. He explained that friends... What are made? How do friends get made? Well, they're people who don't just talk. Friends do. At the close of every interview, the children presented a gift to the leaders. It was always a box, a red box. They could open it up, and inside they would find a key to their front door back home. And they said, now that we're friends, we wanted you to have a key to our house. We wanted to invite you to a sleepover. We hope you'll come and use your key. And Bob said, we hadn't been home very long when our oldest daughter got an email that said, we miss you and your brothers. Can we use our key and come for a sleepover? And they did. But the family would always remember the statement, a friend doesn't just talk. A friend does. 20 years ago, St. Luke's was an incredible friend to this community. You were amazing. The way you came, the way that you served, the way that you held people's hands and prayed and cried and loved people. What a difference you made. I just got to tell you, you were great. You were great. And what we've learned 20 years later, it is still our responsibility. Our responsibility to take the initiative now to share God's love and bring hope in the world. And you and I do that today because we've heard the call to greatness. It's in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let each of us lift up our own silent prayer.